Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Today, we're going to be looking at the arch opposite of Ayn Rand's philosophy, the religious belief that there is a supreme being supported by a crazy but cute argument. This argument is called the ontological argument. It was given that name by a 17th, uh, 18th century philosopher that we're going to discuss in a minute. He didn't give it that. Uh, the author of it didn't give it that name. The author was Saint Anselm of Canterbury, England. Saint Anselm lived from, oh, about 1000 to 1080. Uh, no, actually, these exact dates are 1033 to 1109. So you can think of him as in the middle of the 1000 uh, century, pretty primitive times. Yet this is a very sophisticated, although absurd, argument. It's one of the major arguments given for the belief in God, but it's not one that makes people believe in God. No argument makes people believe in God. They believe in God for psychological, emotional reasons, not out of rational conviction, because if it were a rational conviction, they would spend a minute or two thinking about what's wrong with the arguments that they are basing it on, and maybe looking it up on the web, and all of them have been exploded many times. But this is fun. This one is fun. I'm going to read you a statement from St. Anselm of the argument and then simplify it in my own presentation. Now, we believe that you, he's talking to God, we believe that you are something than which nothing greater can be thought. You, in other words, you are something that we cannot think anything beyond, anything greater than. Or can it be that a thing such as, uh, of such a nature does not exist, since the, quote, the fool hath said in his heart that there is no God? It is one thing for an object to exist in the mind, and another to understand that an object actually exists. Dot, dot, dot. However, even the fool is forced to agree that something than which nothing greater can be thought exists in the mind, since he understands this when he hears it. And whatever is understood in the mind, uh, and surely, let me read that again. Sorry, my eyes went old on me. Even the fool then is forced to agree that something than which nothing greater can be thought exists in the mind, since he understands this when he hears it, and whatever is understood is in the mind. And surely 
that then which a creator cannot be thought cannot, cannot exist in the mind alone. Here we go with the argument now. Surely repeating that then which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist in the mind alone for it exists for if it exists solely in the mind it can be thought to exist in reality also which is greater now this is a translation from the latin so maybe we oughtn't to be so hard on his um grant uh, his uh, turgid writing it's probably very fluent in latin which doesn't have to go through locutions like greater than which nothing can be thought so the argument is i have a understanding i can form an idea of a greatest conceivable being i can form that in my mind If I compare that, that greater than which, the greatest possible being, greatest conceivable being, to a one that exists, the one that exists would be greater. Therefore, it's a contradiction to say the greatest conceivable being exists only in the mind. In fact, we can make it one level more simple. I have the idea of a being that lacks nothing. If it lacked existence, it would lack something. So it's a contradiction to the very concept of this being that he doesn't exist. Therefore, the fact that I can conceive of a being that lacks nothing shows that it exists. Now, the, there have been many attacks on this in the history of philosophy, starting with a guy named Gonilo, who wrote an attempt to refute it right after it appeared as an argument. I can't say it was published because they didn't have publishing back then. But nobody's really gotten to what's going on here. And I want to first show you what's wrong with the traditional argument. The traditional argument is existence is not a predicate. Existence is not a feature of things. So you can't say, and this part is true, you can't say, I have a boyfriend for a girl. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He only lacks one thing. He doesn't exist. He's got all the attributes except that one. He says, I'm doing pretty well with that boyfriend. No, existence is the having of attributes, not an attribute. Existence is reality. Reality is what it is. And you can't make existence into a feature of a thing where would the thing be so kant made that argument that part of that his argument is correct but the way he actually comes down on it is through the example of a hundred pennies he says wanting to show that a um 
there's no comparison, there's no lack in a non-existent God, he says, a hundred imaginary pennies are not one penny more than a hundred real pennies. They don't lack anything. A possible 100 pennies lacks nothing that a real, actual 100 pennies have. Now, that's his way of arguing that there is no lack here. There is no greater than when you compare the existing God and the imaginary God. But, of course, the answer is, what do you mean there's not a penny more? There's a 100 penny more if you have a real set of 100 pennies, and there's nothing. If you're just imagining them or conceiving of them, not, they don't exist. So it's the exact opposite of saying, oh, well, this God doesn't lack anything because to be existent is not a gain over the imaginary thing. That's wrong. It's true that existence is not an attribute, or the term existence is not a predicate you can apply to thing, things. But his way of coming at it is completely backwards. He wants to argue there's no lack. So the argument proves nothing. You just end up saying, I have a concept of a greatest possible being. and. Okay, you do. There's no lack. You can't say that it has uh, any more, that lacks any less than a real thing does. Because the imagination doesn't lack anything. Well, that, that's completely wrong. That's not what's going on. Let me, let me show you what's going on by taking uh, two examples. One there used to be a comedy team named Abbott and Costello. And Costello was always taking advantage, uh, sorry, Abbott was always taking advantage of Costello. So I made it Anselm and Costello, and here's the dialogue. Anselm says to Costello, if I get you $20, will you agree to give me half? Costello says, sure. All right, assume you have $21 bills. Conceive of that situation. Okay, you can do that, right? Oh, yeah. Now, suppose those dollar bills are only imaginary. Oh. But wait, suppose that a few minutes later, you find in the street a different set of $21 bills, and they are not imaginary now, but real. Great. But which actually constitutes $20, the first imaginary bills or the second 20 real ones? Well, imaginary 20 bills add up to nothing, but 20 real bills make $20. Anselm says, that's right, and that's the point. And Costello says, what do you mean? What's the point? That the second $20 we consider can't be just imaginary. You really have them. Costello reaches for his wallet and says, thanks, Anselm. Here's your cut. So the, the idea is that if you conceive of something and 
then conceive of it not existing, you've got a contradiction. Like you said, assume there's X. Okay, now assume that that X doesn't exist. Well, that's a contradiction. X does exist, but X doesn't exist. So what is the conclusion? The conclusion is your assumption that X doesn't exist on top of your assumption that it does exist is a contradiction. So if you're going to assume something exists, you can't then assume it doesn't exist. And the deeper level of um, that same point is to assume something is to assume that it exists. To think of something while you're thinking of it is to think of it as existing. If I say to you, think of a, a beautiful redhead. Okay, you got that in your mind? Now think of her as existing. I already did. When you think of, conceive, assume, consider possible something, that means you temporarily, with kind of a, a note to yourself, say, this is out there. This is real. I'm in my mind looking at it as if it were real. Now, I know that that's just an assumption. I know I'm doing it temporarily for a certain purpose. But even to imagine something is to imagine that it is, that it exists. And there's no then comparison. Once you've made the assumption X or God or this redhead, once you've made the assumption that she exists and you're entering into that assumption, you can't compare that to a second level assumption, what if the, the one you conceived of doesn't exist? To, ex to imagine is to imagine something exists, to assume is to assume it exists, to say if it, to make a hypothetical, if she exists, then so-and-so. All those things are the same as assuming that so-and-so is a fact, assuming that X does exist, assuming that God exists. But what we wanted was a justification for that original assumption. In symbolic logic, when we make an assumption, we put, we begin a vertical line that goes down. I say we, I don't really use symbolic logic, but I was taught it in uh, college. You put a vertical line from where you start the assumption to where you remove it. So for instance, assume I was uh, 10 feet tall. Okay, and put a vertical line. If I were 10 feet tall, I couldn't be sitting in the chair that I am sitting in. But I am sitting in it, so we have an A and a non-A on the, the vertical line goes by all those steps. We have the assumption leading to a contradiction. And therefore, we go back and remove the assumption and say it was false. And this is the method of indirect proof. Assume so-and-so were the killer. 
If he were the killer, then he would have to have been in Chicago at the time of the murder. But he wasn't in Chicago at the time of the murder. He was in Los Angeles. So therefore, the assumption that he was the murderer is false. Very common method of proof, the negative method of proof. Proof by refuting the assumption of the opposite. But Anselm doesn't have that idea at all. Uh, he's <laughs> stepping inside and outside of his assumption. You know, like you've got the, the imaginary $20 and now compared to a real $20. Of $20 you imagine to be real? It's, it's wrong at the start. The greatest conceivable being is not something that you understand, particularly not if you think it would be greater if it existed. You don't have a concept of that. You can't really think of it because it's made up. There's nothing to think about. If you do succeed in conceiving of X, then you conceive of X as existing and there's no question of, well, let's assume it doesn't exist after we've assumed it does exist. So my example, um, another example, if, if the Abbott Costello one uh, doesn't work as, a, as humor, is suppose there is a real acorn. Now you understand what a real acorn is, don't you? A real acorn is a unicorn that's real. It's not an imaginary unicorn. A real acorn is a unicorn that's real. Now, it would be a contradiction for a unicorn that's real not to be real. So real acorns exist. You can't just assume that something is real as part of its nature to assume is to temporarily pretend that it's real. There's nothing else to put inside there. Well, I'm, I'm not going to just imagine this. I'm going to imagine that it exists. That, why not imagine that it exists, uh, that it is, exists and exists and exists? Imagine that I imagine that I exist, that, that it exists, that it exists. The whole thing is a pretzel coming about from severing consciousness and existence. Consciousness is awareness of that which exists. You can imagine things that don't exist, but when you imagine them, it's still through your faculty of consciousness, which suspends disbelief and lets you pretend for a moment, once you start that vertical line, that it exists. There's no such thing as like a realm in which this God lives in consciousness and you can compare it to a God that's out there in the world. That's another pretense that there's a, oh, he would be lacking something compared to a real God. You're imagining the real God just as you imagined the imaginary God. 
So there's no such thing as uh, making an assumption and then comparing it to another assumption as if one could be more real than the other. And that's the error that Anselm does. Now, technically, I'd say it's an equivocation. He's equivocating between imagination and cognition. He's equivocating between making an assumption and being in the assumption and stepping outside the assumption. Now, uh, there are some questions I, I wanted to also take up as a bonus, Pascal's wager. But let me do the questions first that are pending. And if there's time, I'll do Pascal's wager. You've probably all heard of Pascal's wager. And some people think it's the best argument for at least believing in God, <clears throat> if not being certain. It isn't. Let's take some questions. Uh, Daniel, do you have ones? Yes, we have a question from Bonnie, and she asked, could you give us examples of ontological arguments, please? I can't concretize. Well, yes, the ontological argument is this argument, and it's an argument by the nature of a certain concept, its reference have to be real. If there are some things that I can conceive of whose essence involves existing. And there is one such concept, it's the concept existence, or the universe, or reality. Yeah, if you grasp existence, you know it exists. But anything else other than existence ex itself, you to conceive of it does nothing. That's what the real acorn shows. Yeah, the essence of real acorn, the definition, involves real existence, but it's still not real. You can make up a definition of something and include in it, no. And if it didn't exist, I'd be a monkey's uncle. It really does exist. If it didn't exist, there'd be a you put that into it. That doesn't make it true. So um, this is one of those tricky arguments that are cute because they're so convoluted and people trot them out. There are no, but, but no one actually believes in God. No one goes to church because of the ontological argument. Uh, there are no other ontological arguments. Kant, who named it the ontological argument, in the 1700s meant it's an argument about the relationship of mind to reality. None of the other arguments for God are about that. For instance, there's the first cause argument. Doesn't it, Causes can't go back forever. There has to be a first cause and that's God. That has nothing to do with the powers of the mind. The argument from design. When you look at the human eye, you can't believe that it just fell from the sky, or that it came about by some kind of fantastic accident. So the only alternative is that some being had to have 
created it, designed it. So the facts of living organisms, this argument goes, um, are too intricately adapted to their survival to be explained by anything other than somebody consciously doing it, you know, purpose, a conscious being. And that makes no reference to the human mind. So this is the only one that says by the nature of the concept, it has to be real. Now, Descartes, whom I talked about two weeks ago, had a version of this, but it was phrased in terms of perfection. I have the idea of a perfect being. I couldn't have that idea if there weren't a perfect being to cause it in me. Therefore, there must be a perfect being. It's not exactly the same because it's about the, where the idea came from. Uh, but he also makes an argument that's very much like Anselm's about, it gets technical, so I won't go into it. So either you count Descartes as a different argument or the same argument, that Descartes would be the other argument uh, that's ontological that says from the nature of our concepts, we know there is a God. From the nature of the contents of our mind, we know that there must be a God. And bad, bad argument. Next question. Uh, Bonnie adds, uh, why is it specifically ontological argument? Meaning, what's the difference between ontology and yeah. metaphysics? And why is there a no difference? difference? Metaphysics is another word, but uh, by that time, metaphysics was um, Well, I guess, no, there is a slight shade of difference. They're essentially synonyms. Metaphysics later fell into disrepute as a term, but ontological metaphysics is about the universe as a whole. It's about what it is for existence to be and to have identity, and what is the mind and its relationship to existence in general, in principle. An ontological argument is arguing certain things, certain particular things in the mind, certain thoughts prove something specific exists in the external world. So it's narrow. It's a narrow, it's not about a whole metaphysics, it's about something that is claimed to exist because of its uh, presence in consciousness. It couldn't be in consciousness unless it existed. Now, there are things like that, as they say it. Any sense-perceived entity does exist in the world, and you wouldn't be perceiving it if it weren't there. Uh, next question. So we have one question from uh, last week, and it's about Cartesian doubt. Is this what's behind the rationalistic insistence on deductive proof of phenomena that we can all plainly see? Um, is it behind that? Oh, I think, no, I would say no. Both Descartes' rationalism and the rationalism of, say, contemporary mathematicians or Anselm, 
This argument is very rationalistic and it's before Descartes. Rationalism is a failure to appreciate how knowledge is grounded in perception. Young people who venture into philosophy are almost always rationalistic to some degree, almost always, not completely always, but there's a tendency to be that because if you're dealing with high abstractions and they aren't well grounded in reality for you, by you, then rationalism is the only way to still deal with those abstractions. So someone who's learning about um, an abstract field, and it could be physics or mathematics too, will tend to use the, the terms and the formulas in a fast and loose method or way until he has enough experience with how they apply to reality and come from reality. I'll give you an example of that from my own experience. Uh, I took physics courses at MIT, and I would always, often, not always, understand the presentation of the formula. And it seemed pretty straightforward as it was presented in the lecture. Then I would get a problem. It was always a one kilogram mass is on an inclined frictionless plane. What is what are some measurements going to be when it gets to the bottom? It's released on a frictionless point. It seemed like that always came up, and I was baffled. Even though what I'd learned was the formulas that handled that, I hadn't worked with it. So anything I attempted to do would have been wrong. It would have been what Ayn Rand calls floating abstractions, and it would have gotten the wrong answer. So there's a big difference between learning a term and knowing how to apply it to reality, which means you have to kind of reinduce it for yourself to actually understand it in a concretized way. So rationalism is the default for a person who gets overloaded with abstractions that float for him if he still wants to work with those abstractions. Now, he might say, you know, I don't, I don't understand this field really. I know the lingo. I know some of the ways that the principles are supposed to apply, but I, I can't do economics or physics or whatever the very abstract thing is. Then you're not rationalist. But if you say, aha, I know principles of economics, so I'm going to predict we're entering a recession. That's rationalism. You need a lot more information, a lot more about the individual measurements of what's going on to make that prediction. Uh, now, uh, Dan, you said there was another comment, a question on Jordan Peterson. Yes. Uh... Do you want Can to we a... put that off to last time and next time since it's 432? Okay. Uh, and I'll look it over and give a better answer for having had extra time with it. So um, 
Next week, we will start at least with Pascal's wager, where, again, I think I have a different analysis of it than at least most people in the history of philosophy. So until then, thank you for attending, and I hope to see you next Monday.